New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to be exploring hypnagogic consciousness. My guest is Adam Crabtree, who is a psychotherapist working in the Toronto, Canada area. He is the author of many books, including a magnificent bibliography of references on animal magnetism, early hypnosis, and psychical research. His other books include Multiple Man, Trance Zero, From Mesmer to Freud, Memoir of a Trance Therapist, Evolutionary Love, and his most recent book about which we'll be talking today, The Land of Hypnagogia. Once again, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Adam. It's a real pleasure to be with you once again. It's great to be here, Jeff. You've written a masterpiece, in in my opinion, The Land of Hypnagogia, uh, because it combines psychological insights with uh, deep philosophical insights, and it's also uh, an exploration of, of your own personal journey. Yeah, there's so much to say about it, but w- why don't we start by, uh, for the benefit of our viewers, defining what uh, the hypnagogic state is all about? Traditionally, the hypnagogic has been written about uh, since around the middle of the 19th century. And it has been defined from the beginning as a state, a sort of a twilight state between sleeping and waking. And that's the way it's been talked about over a long period of the long period of time from then until quite recently. And I myself have expanded that meaning. That's not the meaning that I use in my book. It's that plus much more. Because I see hypnagogia as the way that we explore human depth. It's the principal way we we explore human depth. And so it's not just a state that happens sometimes between sleeping and waking. It is there, but it's much, much more than that. It's all those ways in which human depth comes to us, meets us, whether it's when we're asleep or waking up or sometimes during the day too. It shows itself, it manifests itself. And that is what I call the hypnagogic state and the phenomena of the hypnagogic state I call hypnagogia. Now, Carl Jung used a technique, I believe he called it active imagination. And it seems to me from uh, his writings in the Red Book that he engaged in very extensive, uh, ongoing conversations with a, like a spiritual guide he called Philemon in the state of active imagination. And it strikes me that that would be very similar to what you're referring to here. Well, it is. That's certainly one example of hypnagogia. I mean, hypnagogia pops up all the many different places in literature. People's unusual experiences, which they call visionary, or where they where they call talk about visits, or where they talk about going on journeys. But it it's not just when they're sleeping and dreaming. 
it's afterwards, but also on other occasions that cannot be pinned down because hypnagogia can, is something that can be found any place in life, any time in life. Well, for most people, uh, meaning me, actually, it, it seems like a very fleeting, very elusive state. I, for the most part, I'm in my normal waking consciousness 99.999% of the time if I'm, if I'm not asleep. And I, I experience that state of consciousness, oh, for a few seconds going into a, a, a sleeping and dreaming state. And, and that's pretty much it. But I gather that some people, and you're probably such a person have, have cultivated the ability to hold and maintain that state. Well, yes. And it, with me, it, it's quite natural because I described this in the book, but for, for me, it started when I was about five years old. In 1944, it started at a particular time. I can date it. I was just five years old and I had read or wasn't was re reading the Mandrake the Magician comic strip. At that time, the Mandrake Magician comic strip was quite popular in the papers, or what we call the funnies. You know, you go to the paper and you see the, the cartoons, and Mandrake was one of the strips that was there. And I remember an experience there that is described where Mandrake has this, uh, found this solution that he can put on a mirror and after he applies it to the mirror, he can walk through the mirror to the other side. And as I was reading this as a five-year-old, what does a five-year-old know after all? But as I was reading this, I suddenly became terrified. I felt like my whole life had been turned upside down. I felt like there was something where I thought the world was one way, it really was another way. And uh, it was just like three little comic strips on a page, uh, three little frames, you might say, of a comic strip on a page that did that to me. And that was the beginning for me of going into these states. Um, that, that going through the mirror to the other side, Mandrake found a whole world there, which he called the mirror world. And people living there were pe like the people on this side, the very same, except some, somewhat different, odd, weird on the other side. And he called them the mirror people. And their names were the, the, the names they have on this side pronounced backwards. So that stuck with me ever since. And that was a long, long time ago, 1944. And that was my, the beginning of it. And I've had experiences that are unusual experiences I call that hypnagogic, even though I wasn't waking up from sleep. It's that same region. And that was my initiation into hypnagogia and into the land of hypnagogia. And it never left me. And it left me shaken. And it left me thinking that this world and this experience of life that we have is not what we believe it to be. I know it may sound odd that a five-year-old could have that experience, but I did. And ever since, I've been intrigued by exploring that land, which is what I consider human depth. I think some people have them quite commonly, but you have to be ready to be frightened. You have to be ready to see the strange and not turn away and run.
And that's the way it was for me. I stayed with it. And we can profit from that if we pay attention. But most people run away. They don't want, it seems frightening, it just seems, and, and too confusing. But my life has been in some way repeating that experience over and over again, even though it involves fear and unusual kinds of experiences. Well, you know, now that you mention it, Adam, uh, I am reminded, especially since I just said I never have a prolonged hypnagogic experience, that in my childhood, uh, they were much more common. And, and I, I, I used to have, I actually occasionally lengthy daydreams and uh, very vivid ones, as, as a matter of fact. And, uh, I, I'm guessing that this, access to this realm is much more common for children. I think it is more common for children, partly because they are open to the unusual without immediately have to, having to censor it and cut it off and run from it. You describe this as a, as a sort of fearful experience, but as I recall from my childhood, they were often very seductive. Like, uh, I would read uh, certain fantasy stories. Raggedy Ann would hop on a dragon and fly through the air, and I would have fantasies of doing the same thing, flying on a dragon uh, as a child. For, and it, they seem wonderful. Hypnagogic images are a mixed bag. That is, they can't have frightening things in them. And my initiation through Mandrake the Magician was frightening because it seemed to shake the whole world up. But many of the experiences are not frightening at all. They are just interesting. They are unusual. And they can lead somewhere because... They are indications and expressions of human depth. One of the points that you seem to make in your book, and, and I think it is an outgrowth of your experience uh, reading the Mandrake uh, comic book, is, is that there's a certain dread associated with uh, experiencing this kind of depth. It is true that some human depth experiences bring with them a sense of dread because they so shake up our ordinary familiar uh, way of seeing the world that gives us comfort and feeling of stability and that everything's all right. You know, everything's all right with the heavens. Uh, but other experiences are not of that kind. It seems that with you, with your experiences of hypnagogia as a child, many of them are pleasant. And many hypnagogic experiences are pleasant or, in, or intriguing or feeling like they open up things in a positive way, non-frightening way. But Nietzsche, who is one of my favorite people, as you, will, as you know from reading my book, um, he saw the Internet as, or the Internet, oh, it's most, he saw, he saw um, human the, the human abyss is what he called human depth, the abyss. And he said, be careful when you look into the abyss because the abyss is looking back at you. <laughs> and he, he knew that people had this sense of, of awe, but also sense of fear and dread that kept them away from it. Well, you, you quote a wonderful poem by Nietzsche where he uh, 
uh, it says it's, it's like going down into a well, but for, uh, superficial people, it may seem like going to hell. Yes, that's right. He wrote this great poem that I think I can recite it. The poem is dig. Or it starts this way. Where you're standing, dig, dig out. Down below's the well. Let those who walk in darkness shout, down below there's hell. And what he's saying is, wherever you are, wherever you're standing, you can dig there and you'll get the well. You'll get the well of human depth. And it's only people who don't understand it, who are running from it, who believe that it's hell. Well, that's rather profound because many, many people, uh, when they think of hypnosis, when they think of depth psychology, uh, there's a group of people who say you must avoid this at all costs. It's diabolic. Yes. And that's such nonsense. And it keeps so much of the human race away from wonderful experiences. Not just wonderful, also spine tingling and world shaking experiences that would be good for the human race to have more available to it. In your book, um, The Land of Hypnagogia, you uh, report on, I, I mean, it's sort of centered around the idea that you wrote this paper to for an academic journal on psychological depth and, and the dread uh, we have of exploring our own depths. The paper got rejected. And, and then you go, you go into uh, a, a deep personal exploration involving your own hypnagogic experiences as, as to uh, what was the, I guess, underlying meaning. There was so much more to that paper that you, that more than you had even written that became uh, revealed to you as a result of this hypnagogic exploration. Yes. What you're talking about now is what I call the second book of the land of hypnagogia. The first book is about hypnagogia itself, as we've been talking about it, as human death. The second book talks about my experience where uh, I have a property north of Toronto where I would go as a kind of retreat, and I have a lot of my library is there. And this article that I'd written about death had been rejected, and I had it bound and put in this, what I call a vertical file, and it was sitting on the wall in my study in this retreat that I call Stonewell. And I was there one day, and I looked up, and I saw this, uh, this uh, file that contained the rejected article on depth. And it was sort of vibrating or something that was odd. So I took it down and looked at it and took out this bound copy of the rejected article, and I opened it up, and inside I saw, to my surprise, that there were these tunnels through the paper that had been made by a bookworm. <laughs> and, uh, and I was sort of shocked, because I wasn't expecting it. And while I was looking at it, I noticed there was a movement up to my left, sort of vibration. And I realized that there was a cocoon there up in my, to my left inside the cover of this book, and that was vibrating. And then out of this cocoon, something came and was there for a moment and then flew off. And I was sort of 
really shocked because none of this was expected by me. So what, to make a long story short, <laughs> this uh, is a moth that re resulted from this bookworm eating my rejected article and digesting it and, di and digesting it, it when he converted to, into a moth. That moth had also that digested article in it, but unfortunately, uh, it wasn't completed. There were things defective about my thinking in that article, and so the moth was feeling a kind of stomach ache from this. And it came back to lecture me about my failures in my career, which are shown in my lack of understanding, a full understanding of depth. And in order to relieve itself of this, this kind of stomach ache, it was going to give me lectures about my failures. And so the whole second book is about the lectures of the book moth. And these are lectures about me, my failures, and a lot of it has to do with different aspects of depth that I ignored. It really is fascinating. And, uh, I have to assume that the, the, that section, book two there, is a, uh, a product of active imagination. And, uh, earlier you said you cannot direct hypnagogic experience, but I uh, have the feeling that in, in some sense that, uh, exposition was directed. Am I wrong? Did, how did that manifest? Well, the way it works with me is this. Something comes to me out of the blue and I pay attention to anything that comes out of the blue because there's something to be learned and if I pay attention to it it starts to develop and if I don't turn away and keep paying attention to it and follow it where it goes it develops into whatever it's going to become now I don't direct that I only give it an opportunity to develop so it's my curiosity and my willingness to let the hypnagogic seeds grow and develop and become something that is involved. My you know, wife teaches courses on creativity, and she she has uh, an exercise uh, that she calls holographic thinking uh, with her students, where. Uh, they can pick up any object, like it might be a pair of glasses or a paper clip or um, a mouse, a computer mouse, something like that, and have a conversation with it, and and it will talk back to them. And uh, any simple object has enormous depth. And in your case, the uh, the bookworm or or uh, book moth. In, as it as it was, it had uh, enormous insights in, into you, and then you began having a, a, a very extensive dialogue with this moth. That's right. That's right. That's the whole second book of the land of hypnagogia. Yes, I must say that it was a lot of fun to see this come, to to see the moth developing and saying these things, and really taking me to task about a lot of things, and I enjoyed it. Strange, Strangely enough, I enjoyed being taken to task because I was learning. But I also answered back sometimes if I felt there was something being missed or not right. It was a great dialogue.
The uh, original paper that had been rejected was titled something like uh, Depth and Dread. Yes, that's right. That's right. I was trying to come to terms with it and laying emphasis on the dread part of it. I think that's part of the problem. That's too narrow. Too narrow. It isn't just dread. There are many other kinds of depth experiences and depth revelations that occur. Well, you do have a, um, a sense, for example, in the existential literature where uh, you have to get in touch with the most negative feelings in order to I experience yourself authentically. Well, yes, because the negative things is part of our shadow, part of what are, we're hiding from ourselves. Part of the, it's a doorway to our depth. And if we're not going to go through that doorway because we don't want to face negative things, we're not going to ever discover things. Of course, you uh, worked as, as a depth psychologist yourself. You're very familiar with Freud, who, who pointed out the, the, what Freud would call the unconscious mind are basically the things about ourselves we don't want to know. Yes, that's true. Freud saw that. And so he had a, a bit of an insight into human depth. It had started, as you know from my other lectures on some of your programs, it had started with Puységur, the Marquis de Puységur, who was a disciple of Mesmer. That's, that's the guy that first opened the door. Freud was one of the people who went through little ways. But in my opinion, he didn't go down very far. He discovered a certain depth, but a sort of superficial level of depth. And part of what I say in my book is a heavy criticism of modern psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis that's put depth into a kind of handy straitjacket of models and, and concept and so forth. And I think this has been a terrible service to Western culture, the whole Western culture has suffered a kind of starvation because of this terrible, narrow approach from Freud and others. Puisigir began something very wonderful, and it didn't have to go. It would ideally have gone much deeper, but Freud was one of the people who said, this far and no farther, this is, this is good, let's, let's do this and keep on doing it forever. In fact, one might say that Freud's break with Jung was o exactly over that issue. I believe so. I believe that's the heart of it, because Jung was willing to go the distance. But even Jung, when he engaged in his uh, uh, active imagination explorations, hypnagogic explorations, encountered uh, his... Uh, the equivalent, I'd have to say, of a spiritual teacher, Philemon, uh, from whom I gather Jung derived most of his theoretical ideas. Uh, Jung was afraid of descending into madness. Uh, some people suggest that he did. Yes, he was afraid of that. And Tony Wolfe, who he had been working with and who became his companion, helped keep him out of madness, helped keep him in enough in this world to be able to learn new things, but not become mad. Back to hypnagogia, are, 
at one point you suggested that you can't really direct it, but at another point you said there is a way of working with it, that you can listen to it. You can kind of, I get the feeling that you can, maybe you can massage it or prod it or by paying attention to it, you can, uh, you, for example, it seems pretty clear to me, you engage in a, in a very extensive hypnagogic conversation with this book moth. Yes, it's true that our, my dialogue with the book moth was very extensive and it expanded tremendously in a way that really is so interesting to me. I'm like a participant. I'm an onlooker. I'm not a creator of this stuff. Okay, It, it creates itself and it manifests itself to me. So it's, a, it's a great to be an observer of this. Rudolf Steiner, who was a, both a philosopher and an esoteric thinker, maintains that uh, every thought we have is a, is a spiritual entity. Now, uh, I'm under the impression from, from your book that, that you, you don't want to go that far as to say become a spiritualist, but, uh, but you come right up to the edge there. I hope that I go do more than just come to the edge. If you mean by spiritualism, communication with the dead and that sort of thing, no, that has, I found, really eventually quite boring. Not that I find it unbelievable, but I find it really not very deep at all. And so, although I explored that avenue for a few years of my life, it wasn't satisfying to me. Spiritualism as a movement, that is. Well, you, of course, you wrote extensively about the relationship between mesmerism and psychical research. And, uh, one might say that the spiritualist movement was something of, uh, of one of the several outgrowths of that. Absolutely. Spiritualism historically came right out of mesmerism with other things added. Yes, it did. What Steiner was suggesting is that every thought is, in effect, a spiritual entity. It doesn't have to be a, a ghost or a deceased person. That uh, a uh, an idea like an I, the idea of the book moth itself has spiritual potency. To me, ideas in the West have too much of a sense of abstraction, concepts, and so forth. I like the notion of images. Images being t endlessly fruitful, which can expand in every direction. But of course, they have a rational or, or uh, an intellectual dimension to them, these images. I'd like to go back to uh, one of the very first experiences uh, that you describe in, in your book ab about hypnagogia, where, if I recall correctly, you're, you're looking at yourself in the mirror, much like, I guess, Mandrake uh, looked into the mirror, and, and you uh, found yourself drifting into a realm where there was a, a cardboard man who was having a conversation with somebody named Brian. And, and you had this sense that Brian referred to you of all things, and then it all disappeared. It, it, it was a lot of vivid imagery, but it, it didn't seem to necessarily go anywhere. Well, to me, it was a very important experience. Now, this happened at night when I got up to go to the bathroom, believe it or not. So I'd been sleeping deeply, and I was half asleep when I went to the bathroom. And I realized I stood, stood in front of the mirror and was looking at the bath in the bathroom mirror, and I closed my eyes, 
And I realized what was going on in my mind as I was standing there was totally different from my ordinary way of thinking. And if I opened my eyes, I was back in ordinary reality again. So I closed my eyes and I found myself standing on the edge of a hillside, very gradually sloping up and away in every possible direction, almost in an infinite directions. And I was looking at this hillside and it was like there were events happening all over the, the sides of this hillside, things going on, uh, things occurring like little pieces of time, little pieces of action. And as I was watching this, I looked down and between me and this hillside was a very flimsy fence. And to my right, I saw two figures standing, one on one side of the fence and one on my side of the fence. And the one on the hillside side of the fence looked like a cardboard figure. If you'd laminate 10 thicknesses of cardboard and then carve it off into a shape that looks something like a, a person, uh, and the eye was simply a hole punched through the cardboard, and this thing was standing there talking to the person on this side of the fence, and that person, I somehow knew that their name was Brian. And this cardboard figure was saying to Brian, he was saying, now, Brian, you think you know a lot of things, but in fact, you really don't know that much. <laughs> and as I was standing there, seeing that and hearing this little conversation, to my left was this little man that was going, watching all that was going on, and he was repeating everything word for word and literally over and over again ad nauseum and i just got so sick of this little man repeating everything <laughs> endlessly and that was uh, that that point i opened my eyes i was in my bathroom in front of my mirror and that was a hypnagogic experience without doubt and to me that landscape that was opened up in that experience we have that in us all the time that's there I mean, for everybody, it's a different landscape, and it's populated by different things on that hillside. But it's always alive and happening, and in a way, it's outside of time, although these little pieces of events are within their own time. I get the feeling from your description that the fence uh, there with the two figures, I think one on each side of the fence, it's... It, seem to represent the boundary between our our normal external world and this other realm, the land of hypnagogia. Yes, you're right. And I talk about something in, in the first book of the land of hypnagogia called The Enchanted Boundary. And this is taken from a book, uh, actually a psychical research book, called The Enchanted Boundary. And there's this wonderful description of if you cross this boundary, like the knights would cross this boundary with full armor and, and horses and power, and when they crossed the boundary, it all caved in on them. Their armor was full of cracks, and their horses became hardly able to walk along the path. And everything changed when you crossed that boundary because, the author says, because, lo, it was an enchanted boundary. And I think we have an enchanted boundary between the land of hypnagogia and the land of the ordinary. And when you go across that boundary and cross into the land of hypnagogia, 
the tools that you use to understand this world, the world of the ordinary, don't apply. They don't work. You have to change your tools. You have to let it teach itself. You can't go after it and corral it. Now, you report a number of other hypnagogic experiences in, in your book. And probably the most fascinating comes at the end where you, you sort of dive into the well we were speaking of earlier with Nietzsche as, as your companion and guide. And, uh, in, in one such experience, it did seem dreadful. It was like you were in a pit. You were on, on trial and, and everybody understood you were guilty. You were going to be executed. It must have uh, been like a, an encounter with uh, a state of absolute humiliation. Absolute humiliation, hopelessness, no way out, because everybody was against me, even my so-called friends. Now, I say me. It was me in the pit. But in fact, I was also the observer of this whole scene. I was both things. And so I wasn't, in my journey down there, I wasn't afraid. But the me in the pit was certainly terrified and hopeless, yes. So you had a sense of uh, almost like bilocation. Yes, and that's very, I, I experience that every day. I experience, an, uh, you might say, an observer part of me all the time that's present with everything I do, observing what I do, and I'm doing them, so I'm there, but also this observer is separate and unaffected unaffected. It's not, doesn't participate in the emotion. It just observes. And this is something that actually reminds me of something that my friend Michael Murphy of Esalen would talk about, which is, he said there is this poem in uh, Hindu culture of two birds on a tree, and one of the tree of life. And on that they're on branches, and the one bird eats of the fruit of the tree, and the other eats not. And I think that that observer is the one that eats not, and the, and the other bird is the one that lives life. And as I recall in this hypnagogic experience down in the well, you, you are condemned, you're guilty of committing a horrible crime, you're executed, but then the scene changes and you are into one of the most beautiful, seductive, fascinating places one could ever imagine, a, a carnival of the senses. And, uh, you also had a sense that this was a very dangerous place. It was because it was so wonderful. Uh, these were all the productions of the human community over all of the ages gathered together and showing themselves in all their glory. And it's real glory and it's true accomplishment of the human race. So it's wonderful to go there and see these things. But if you stay there, you, you can't go on. You can't learn further. You're, you're stuck. And so it's like a temptation to stay there and just go on and on enjoying it. And I recognized that as I approached this, that it was a temptation like a siren call. And I had to avoid going there and staying, getting stuck there. 
It sort of reminded me of academia, where uh, if you're a college student, you're exposed to all the wisdom of, of the human com community, or really, to be accurate, all the knowledge, uh, not so much all the wisdom. And uh, But it's very seductive. And furthermore, as a college student, you have all sorts of other uh, pleasures that are available to you that you never had before when you were living in your parents' home. And uh, it can be... It can become a uh, a place where people get stuck in in their lives because because it's it's so pleasurable and infinitely complex. Yes, I think that this place that's so seductive is seductive because the the things that it contains are real. They're real accomplishments. They really are interesting. But the problem is to get stuck there and go no deeper. We, and we can do that, as you say, you can do that in academia, too. And I think that Freud is, did that. He was very fascinated by his accomplishments and others in related matters of his profession. And he got stuck there, and he went no further. One might say uh, this is true of the profession of psychology uh, as a whole. There are enormous insights. Psychology as a discipline, even depth psychology, has been very crucial uh, in in 20th century, 21st century culture. Uh, and at the same time, there's so much further that that we really need to go if we're going to address the problems we face. That is well put. That's exactly the way I see it. There was a great deal of accomplishment there, and I've written my own uh, academic uh, articles and, and treaties on why uh, Pouchegir's discovery of artificial somnambulism opened up depth to the whole of the Western world, which became our culture, and it's full of wonders, but it's only part, it's only part of the way down. It's so easy just to think we've got it now, we've got it now, and we don't. Well, in your hypnagogic explorations with Nietzsche, after you uh, managed to escape from this very seductive realm full of uh, all wonders and, and all knowledge, as I recall, then you encounter another boundary. In fact, I think you describe it as more than just a boundary, but a divide. It, that's right. I, you keep on going further in, into the depths, or I kept on going further into the depths, and I've, actually I come to a whole region called home, the feeling of home, and the wonderful sense that I found a home that I knew about, that I had been there, that, that it was a wonderful place, and there with my people, and we understood each other. And, and I was enjoying that so greatly. This is an actual experience I've had. And the experience of home, but beyond that experience of home, to continue, to continue down was something else. It was something inexpressible and something very, very unknown. And as a, that's right, not just the boundary, but it's a divide. And if you go across that divide, I felt, if you go across that divide in the world, in the depth, you may never come back. That is... It would actually take you somewhere, and whatever you were before is gone. And you are somewhere else, uh, probably doing much better, but, but you, there was no return. That was my feeling. 
You know, it does remind me of uh, the reports of people who have near-death experiences. Um, they they do talk about this feeling of being at home, the, the place where they always belonged. But then they they do suggest that there's uh, further evolution uh, beyond that, and uh, an evolution of sort of merging with the infinite, losing individual identity completely. Yes. I think they, they're onto something there. I really do. I think that corresponds quite well to what happened to me as I explored the depth in this journey with Nietzsche. There's a, a, a phrase that I've heard uh, used in different contexts, the idea of the psychonaut, the person who is exploring the landscape of, of the psyche. And it seems to me that through this uh, hypnagogic exploration, that's precisely what you're doing. Uh, I've often thought that maybe lucid dreaming was the way to do it. But uh, obviously, or I assume that the, these experiences that you report are not via lucid dreaming at all. They're via some some other related process. Absolutely, and they're very accessible. That doesn't mean that I can produce them, but I can make them accessible, and I can do things that encourage their, their coming to me so you don't have to wait for dreams. They can happen any time. I also have a sense from your explorations, Adam, that uh, this is not particularly culturally dependent or uh, dependent on, on some sort of a uh, religious uh, theological structure. You're really... I think religions have taken us away from depth because they've tried to take us away from our fear of depth, which is what we wanted. We wanted, wanted religions to make us feel safe and not fearful. But as a result, we've lost contact with depth. Well, this has been a, a wonderful exploration, uh, Adam, and uh, I'm, I'm really delighted because it seems to me that what you are mapping out actually is uh, an excellent approach to, to the whole question of uh, the, this endeavor that I, I would characterize as, as psychonauts, that there's there's so much there in, in the human psyche. but And of course, your experience was very unique to yourself, but at the same time, it strikes me as being very universal. I believe that it is universal and unique. I think we are all singularities and never repeat, but, it's all, but we all are, so it's universal. <laughs> well, Adam Crabtree, thank you so much for being with me. It's been a great pleasure to connect with you after several years since we were last together. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation about Nietzsche. So do I. And thank you very much for the invitation. And I look forward to that one, too. I uh, highly recommend that our viewers take a look at your book, The Land of Hypnagogia. And uh, for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.